You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is dedicated to Henry Kimball of the UK, a true fan of Winston, who would have enjoyed this diversion immensely. But he probably already knew it all anyway. This dedication was requested by Steve and Lisa B., Henry's daughter, of Plymouth, England. Sadly, Henry died before Steve and Lisa met and later married. One can only hope that Steve's and Henry's mutual fascination of the First and Second War and Churchill would have made the journey of sharing Lisa's love a bit easier. Henry will always be missed by his family. They still talk of him frequently and Steve and Lisa regret that Henry never got to meet his grandson, Harrison, who's now a young man in his own right. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 107, The End of the End. Subtitled, The Peter Pan of British Politics. Churchill, after returning to Britain from what would have been a very profitable trip if it weren't for the crash of the New York Stock Exchange, indeed, Winston would have to write non-stop for the foreseeable future to keep his family in their current sense of luxury, now found himself delegated to represent a faction of the Tory party that was against setting India on the path to independence. This path also put him at odds with Baldwin, the conservative leader. Churchill would find that this was just one too many times unto the breach. Not that it would make a difference, but Winston would have a Sancho to his Don Quixote. Lloyd George, though past his prime, felt the same way as Winston and was willing to put his words where his feelings were. Winston had arrived home on Tuesday, November 5th, 1929, 
the debate in the House over Lord Irwin's proposal concerning India commenced three days later, on Friday, November 8th. As was proper, Prime Minister MacDonald spoke first, and he was for Lord Irwin's idea of letting India go. Baldwin then rose and announced that the Tories supported the Prime Minister's position. To be clear, Baldwin did not say he supported the idea. He proclaimed the Tory party did. But then Lloyd George, the Grain former Prime Minister, spoke up and attacked the very notion of Lord Irwin's proposal, with Churchill supporting him wholeheartedly with shouts of no or yes at the correct moments in the speech. And Winston was not alone. Had the vote been taken that day, probably half of the Tory MPs would have turned away from their leader. But the vote was not taken that day, which gave Baldwin time to twist arms and make threats. Strangely, Winston did not speak that day. His first attack came in the form of a piece in the Daily Mail. He laid out his beliefs concerning India and dared anyone to refute them. Britain's rescue of India from ages of barbarism and its slow but ceaseless forward march to civilization was simply, on the whole, the finest achievement of our history. Dominion status to India is not practicable at the present time, and that any attempt to secure it will encounter the earnest resistance of the British nation. Besides, Britain was the only thing keeping India from an all-out war with itself. Millions could die. Thus the war of words over India in trying to prevent a war of arms between the Muslims and the Hindus continued on, and each side drew blood. But that blood was only political. Meanwhile in India, as a sense of British control was coming to an end, ever more violent clashes broke out. In some instances, British soldiers were among the casualties. But Gandhi wanted to show people, like Winston, that his country knew something other than violence. There were more passive ways of getting his people to think like an independent country. In March of 1930, the Mahatma gathered a handful of salt and started walking to the Indian Ocean. At the time, the salt trade was controlled by the British Raj, its revenue vital. Gandhi wanted to show that his country's resource should be free, at least to the Indian people, if not the whole world. There was certainly enough of it. But the slight, diminutive Brahmin would never make it to the coast. Gandhi was arrested one night, as British officials in the area grew nervous over his influence. But the march continued on without him. Soon, teachers were taking their students to the shore to be a part of the beginning of India's independence. Others, even of other castes, followed suit. The nervous Raj responded by not allowing newspapers to cover this propaganda stunt, nor the growing political movement. But Gandhi got what he wanted. The natives, carrying their own palmfuls of salt, were thinking in terms of us and the British, and not Hindus versus Muslims, or vice versa. Nehru, the man who would become India's first prime minister, wrote to the famous prisoner, May I congratulate you on the new India you have created by your magic touch. 
The British officials in India then became even more uncomfortable when realizing the numbers aligning themselves with Gandhi. Soon, local demonstrations were violently broken up, and within weeks, officials had arrested some 100,000 of Gandhi's followers. Winston's response to all this was, literally, I told you so. But rising to the level of a mature adult again, Winston was not shy in dissecting the cause of all this mayhem. The British government, in the form of Prime Minister MacDonald, or quite frankly, the leader of his own party, Baldwin, simply refused to step forward and take command of the deteriorating situation. Quote, when eagles are silent, the parrots begin to jabber. Unquote. The violence and lack of British control continued. By the end of September 1930, Winstein, sensing that the time had come for a powerful demonstration, declared he would remain in public life until this question of India's future was settled. The newspapers ran with this. However, the wind was ripped from Churchill's sails when his best friend, F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, suddenly took ill and died. Though Winston had entertained thousands at Chartwell, his boon companion, his other half, was gone. For Winston, it seemed another family member was taken from him. On October 1st, Clementine wrote to the widow, Last night Winston wept for his friend, and said several times, I feel so lonely. But politics, like the turning of the earth, never stops. Many members of the House of Lords had looked to their former colleague, Lord Birkenhead, for leadership on the India question. Now they, as one, turned to Winston. Even more did he become the face of the tide that fought against Lord Irwin, the Prime Minister, and Baldwin. It didn't matter that at least half of the Tory MPs at the moment agreed with Winston. They, understandably, were looking after themselves and so refused to stand against the party leader. And events moved apace. Baldwin had already made it known to those he trusted, or needed to threaten, that if he ever got the chance to form another government, Winston would not be in it. This was, of course, partly personal. But to put a proper face on it, the official reason given was the party's, i.e. Baldwin's, pro-view on high tariffs. This, Winston was opposed to. Then, in a seemingly mature moment, something that seems alien to modern politicians, Baldwin and Churchill met on the night of October 14th and had a long, frank talk. They admitted to each other their falling out and the regret it caused them. Afterward, Baldwin wrote a presumed heartfelt letter stating he missed the camaraderie the two of them once had and hoped that Winston would, soon, see his way to coming round to Baldwin's thinking, not only on India, but also on tariffs. Of the latter, Winston was unable to make that journey, as his superior well knew. As for Winston, he could see what was up ahead on the road he was currently on, and considered resigning from the shadow government, which, not mentioned before, was the unofficial but oh-so-real council that ran the Tory party. Winston was its second-in-command, next to Baldwin, but his influence within it had been falling for some time. But actions speak louder than words, and Baldwin's next step told Churchill everything he needed to know. Soon after their late-night earnest conversation, 
Baldwin approved the removal of the British High Commissioner from Cairo. This was the first step in withdrawing all British troops from Egypt, except along the canal. Thus baited, Winston thundered in the house. During the last 40 years, everything had turned upon the British garrison in Cairo. With its departure, the once glorious episode of England in Egypt comes to an end. It is not without a bitter pang that I contemplate this. He went on to say that there were those who thought like him, but said, let's clear out, watch the whole thing come crashing down, and then we'll have a mandate to re-enter the subcontinent. But to Winston's thinking, such a notion is no foundation for the continuance of British fame and power. Once we lose our confidence in our mission in the East, it will be a presence which cannot long endure. Winston was certainly not alone with his reaction. And finally, certain members of the Tory party found the ability to resist their leader somewhat. Soon after Winston's speech in the House, solid conservatives formed the Indian Empire Society and invited the MP from Epping to speak. The first meeting was held on December 12, 1930, at London's Cannon Street Hotel. These men, normally a collective powerhouse on their own, were looking for a leader for fire and brimstone, and that's what Winston gave them. Here's some of what he said. When the Union Jack was burned in Lahore recently, the criminals should have been rounded up. When Gandhi broke the law for the first time, he should have been put away. Of course, it was possible, even advisable, to shift some of the political authority to India as they demonstrated their ability to handle such power. But the Raj, at least for now, should remain the ultimate authority. The regard for all it had done should be treated with respect. But to give in to force, to terrorism, was only to encourage those willing to use violence to achieve goals. And if those are the people that will one day be running a country of untold millions, the consequences were too dire to contemplate. It is no use trying to satisfy a tiger with feeding him cat's meat. But as 1931 opened up, Winston found his voice, his words, disappearing. His articles could only be found by turning more and more pages of most newspapers. Editorials, however, those of the front-page kind, were speaking out, not for India's future, but against Churchill. Winston could see that another dramatic gesture was needed to turn the tide. So, he offered Sir John Reith, the BBC's managing director, £100 for 10 minutes on the BBC. But Reith's superior, Wedgwood Ben, the man who replaced Lord Irwin, as he headed the roundtable discussing India, refused the offer, saying it would do immense harm to India. Winston fought back by saying he found it hard to believe that debarring public men from access to a public who wished to hear was somehow good for Britain or for the supposed coming of the Indian Republic. In this, Britain was not exactly offering itself up as a role model. Churchill then slipped a knife between Wedgwood's ribs by claiming that the man ought to at least show an equal solicitude for impartiality. Churchill would address the Indian Empire Society two more times, for all the good it did, 
seeing how coverage of his speeches were further buried in the newspapers. Neville Chamberlain, who stood by Baldwin's side on this and every other issue of import, privately wrote to a few colleagues that he personally wished the transfer of power in India would take a more measured pace. But in public, his words matched his leaders. What's more, he attempted to chide those who stepped out of line by saying that each MP had an obligation to the party's leader, as if loyalty to conscience or the fate of the British way of life were of secondary nature. Then there were the whispers, and one can guess where they originated, that proclaimed Winston was really just trying to split the party over India as he was mounting a coup. As one pro-Baldwin MP put it, he's not the son of Randolph for nothing. For those Tory MPs stuck in the middle, they mostly took Winston's view, but as they were obsessed with their own positions and financial security, they couldn't help but ask themselves and each other, just what exactly was Churchill's long-term gain? He had switched to the Liberals in 1904 and then back to the Conservatives in 1924. Where would he leap to next? Surely not to Labour. He and they had never been able to look each other in the eye with a semblance of respect. The answer seemed to be, though it made many of Winston's peers shiver with fear, what the writers who covered British politics called the political wilderness. A place where a man was not wanted by any party, but who somehow managed to retain his seat, but neither contributing or influencing a single issue in the House. And by this point, it must be said, the majority of the Tory party, hell, of every party, just wanted the issue to go away. But it was the bulk of the Tories that privately sided with Churchill, paid lip service to Baldwin, but really just wanted peace, probably at any price. But not Winston. He, as we have shown, enjoyed a good scrape. Besides which, he had made another important decision. He could see the cracks in the current ruling party and knew their days were numbered, which meant the Tory party had a good chance of recapturing power. But the embattled man wanted no part of that. Churchill wrote to his son in early January 1931, I have no desire to join such an administration and be saddled with all the burden. I shall be much more able to help the country from outside. And the moment of walking through the door to that outside was coming fast. Three weeks after writing to his son, as Lord Irwin readied for the roundtable conference that was to be held in London with members of the India conference on the other side, Irwin, with Baldwin's assent, had released Gandhi from jail. As if that were not enough, he then wrote to Baldwin recommending that the Tory leader be ready to speak in public, supporting the dialogue, and that it would be oh so nice to have Winston away from the capital during this time. When all those who thought like Winston heard that the Mahatma was not only released but coming to London, their collective jaw dropped but their eyes turned to their unofficial leader. Churchill was ready for this, had been ready for some time. Taking hold of the doorknob that would open up to the wilderness that so many feared, Winston rose in the house on January 26, 1931, in the afternoon, and literally 
flung the door open. Quote, I must, of course, first of all, make it clear that I do not speak for the official opposition, nor for my right honorable friend, the leader of the opposition, namely Baldwin. Instead, he spoke solely as a member of Parliament of some service in this House. And that was the end of the niceties. He then tore into those who decided that the round table would only be attended by those who agreed with Lord Irwin and Baldwin, that those who thought like him, whose experience all but demanded that they attend, be shunned away. After all, Britain had been in India for 200 years, had sacrificed thousands of British soldiers in trying to keep the peace. Surely Great Britain had earned rights of our own in India. And what did those leaders think the reaction of the average British citizens would be when, as India was turned over, British women and children were caught up in the crossfire of the violence, sure to come, or even worse, when helpless British citizens were the targets of those seeking vengeance? Was Britain about to be drawn into a war over an area it already controlled? Because that was what was going to happen. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Dot com. As Churchill sat down, he and everyone else had expected MacDonald to rise for rebuttal. But the Prime Minister didn't move. Instead, Baldwin, acting for the Prime Minister, rose and spoke at length. Actually, it may have been a short speech, but it was so filled with legalistic, unmoving, uninspired generalizations about the rights of the Round Table that it seemed to go on. For hours. At the end, only the socialists applauded. The Tories, almost to a man, sat there, stone faced. Churchill may have won the day, but he lost the war. That is, the official contest between himself and Baldwin. The very next morning, Lord Hales tracked Winston down and straightway asked for his resignation from the shadow government, the Tory Leadership Council. Churchill's reaction was thus. Face reddened, then went white. He then pouted furiously, walked to a corner of the room, picked up his silver-knobbed cane, came back and brought the cane down full force on the table. Lord Hales then believed he was next to feel Winston's wrath as well as the cane. But then suddenly, Winston smiled. So the conservative P wants to get rid of me, does it? All right, I'll go quietly. 
He then reached for a piece of paper and wrote a pleasant note to Baldwin, thanking him for allowing him to come to the meetings. Baldwin's reply was an equally cordial note, saying, Yes, we'll miss you. I'm sure you're right not to attend anymore, but I believe your decision is correct in the circumstances. It will probably come as no surprise that Winston's number two spot within the shadow government was filled by Neville Chamberlain. But instead of the assumed depression, Winston felt like he had been loosed from his moorings. He spent the next few months raining thunder down on Baldwin, MacDonald, and Gandhi. The backbenchers loved it, howling with laughter. Though that laughter ended when Winston got around to focusing on MacDonald, who all but let Baldwin steer the course of the government. Staring right at the Prime Minister, Churchill mused, I remember when I was a child being taken to the celebrated Barnum Circus, which contained an exhibition of freaks and monstrosities. But the exhibit on the program which I most desired to see was the one described as the boneless wonder. My parents judged that the spectacle would be too revolting for my youthful eyes, and I have waited fifty years to see the boneless wonder sitting on the treasury bench. Yet again, this was another hollow victory. Early in March, Lord Irwin and the Mahatma signed the pact. Gandhi had called off his mostly passive resistance and came to London, but Winston couldn't help pointing out the man was half-naked. But now that the agreement was signed, it had to be debated in the House. Those lined up against Winston would have to hear him out and then combat him. The debate started on March 12th. Baldwin spoke up for the document, followed by others, who mostly focused on attacking Winston, saying if he had his way, this problem would be solved with a bayonet and machine gun. Winston calmly retorted that the vast majority of violence occurring in India was being perpetuated by Hindus and Muslims. Those remaining British soldiers were just trying to survive. But still, there were many in the House that could not believe Winston was doing all of this because of conviction. Surely he had an end game that launched him into occupying number 10. The debate went on day after day, and Lloyd George joined Winston's side by poisoning the minds of some of those of the round table. But Winston scored more points on his own as he again and again, brought up the millions of untouchables throughout the subcontinent. Why was Britain turning over power to a ruling class that had no problem with ignoring whole swaths of their own people, who were seen as worse than the dirt on the bottom of one's shoe? Of course, there was no direct, rational answer for this, so Churchill brought it up again and again. As one can imagine, this was copy just too good to pass up or bury. Soon, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express had Winston once again adorning their front pages. This displeased Baldwin and his minions, but there was nothing they could do about it. They were left with taking on the colorful, silver-tongued MP from Epping in the house, where he was at his most dangerous. As the weeks went by, Churchill's colleagues tried to intimidate him, attempted to shout him down, but he shouted back, and he had the voice for it. 
Besides, what he was shouting was, at the very least, worth listening to. But, Winston decided, if it was his words they wanted to stop, he would switch tactics. Soon, he brought in pictures of casualties of the religious warring throughout India. The photos were far too graphic to print in newspapers, but they could be shown around the house, which Winston did. Throughout the spring and summer of 1931, Winston was untouchable when it came to the parliamentary diatribe. He had no equal. No one could touch him. But his voice, his words, his prose, which soared to the heavens, was being heard, really heard, by fewer and fewer citizens. The country's economy was weakening day by day. The people, proud of what Winston stood for, were distracted by the daily trial of making ends meet. Britain went off the gold standard, which required more adjustments that helped no one. What's more, the house became morose, as Winston won each time he stood up, but it seemed not to make a difference to those in power. His companion, as in his first days with the Liberals, Lloyd George, had to be taken off to hospital for surgery. Winston was alone again, and he was tired. Dejected, as the black dog of his depression reappeared and cozied up, Churchill left for Chartwell. Thus unhindered, Baldwin got on with being the Tory leader, as well as the unofficial leader of the country, and MacDonald went back to saving money by cutting again and again military expenditures. Both men were happy with the silence. Churchill, meanwhile, busied himself purposefully at home. There were always bricks to lay, and games, not to mention nicknames, to dream up for the children. But as soon as his equilibrium righted itself, Winston was back. But his opponents, who, after all, had the real power, discovered another, far more effective tactic against Churchill. After Winston spoke, and his speeches were well-crafted and moving, either Baldwin or MacDonald would simply go on with business, as if Winston had never spoken. The House, seeing how the lion Churchill had been tied down, refused to raise their heads or their voices. Baldwin's coup de grace was delivered in a soft, gentle tone. He expressed his opinion one day that the members of the House would just find it best to leave the entire question of India to himself, the Prime Minister, and Lord Irwin. By the end of 1931, the British economy, like many other economies, was still sinking, and no relief seemed possible. By then, Wall Street had lost $74 billion. Throughout Britain, urban workers were laid off, or had their pay or hours cut. It soon reached a point where they could no longer afford enough food on their own, which meant the farmers then started going bankrupt. These were desperate times, but King George V had a solution. Calling MacDonald to Buckingham Palace, he told the Prime Minister that although he wanted him to remain the government's head, his cabinet should be made up of an all-party national government during these trying times. So, two Labour ministers were brought into the cabinet, and Baldwin supported this. But, as Lloyd George was still too sick to represent the Liberals, two other members were promoted. However, 
this meant another general election. As the voting day came, no one knew what to expect, with the political and economic climate being what it was. So everyone was surprised when the Tories dominated the day, winning 473 of the national government's 554 seats of the House of Commons. In fact, with these numbers, all the political players expected Baldwin to be the one to head up the government, but he declined. The idea, he said, was for a national government, and it should remain that way. Of course, having expressed this sentiment, Baldwin chose for himself the position of Lord President of the Council, which meant he could pick those who would make up the cabinet. Winston had his own stunning success, winning in Epping by just over 20,000 votes, and therefore, at least on paper, should have received an invitation from Baldwin to be a part of the cabinet. But of course, the letter never came. I was neither surprised nor unhappy when I was left out of it. What should I have done if I had been asked to join? I cannot tell. It is superfluous to discuss doubtful temptations that have never existed. Unquote. Neville Chamberlain continued his rise by being offered the Chancellor of the Exchequer, whereas Winston was reduced to only two solid supporters within the House, Robert Boothby and Brendan Bracken. From here on, when in the House, Winston sat himself on the front bench, on the government side, but right below the aisle. From here, he could lob his verbal shells at both sides of the house when he chose to, and he chose to, often. Of course, he paid a price for it. Now that he was seen as having passed it, those who had been burned by his words did not hesitate to denounce him, to hiss at him when he spoke, to nudge him coming to and from his seat. He had become very much like the untouchables of India, he had so valiantly defended. And this isolation, political as well as personal, hurt the man. His skin was thick, but it was skin all the same, and underneath, a heart. Here I am, almost thirty years in the House of Commons, after holding many of the highest offices of state. Here I am, discarded, cast away, marooned, rejected, and disliked and would have been poor, too, if he had to live off the 500 pounds annual, the salary of a backbencher. But Winston took solace in the words of his friend, the late Birkenhead, whose absence he still felt keenly. Quote, the world still has its glittering prizes for those who have stout hearts and sharp swords. Unquote. But at this time, and for many years to come, Britain nay, the entire Western world, would shun the stout-hearted, would snivel at those carrying sharp swords. Retreating, something Winston could only do when at a low point, he gave up Venetian Montague's house he had been renting and lived at Chartwell year-round. And it was there, at his own personalized asylum, that he wrestled with his depression, with hard work out on the grounds and went inside, writing feverishly, to keep the ever more worthless money coming in. The research on the Marlborough biography commenced. His book, My Early Life, was being finished, 
Galleys for the next World Crisis volume were being cleaned up. And, as always, Winston was dreaming up and putting out articles for dozens upon dozens of magazines. The one glaring absence in his life was politics. With his political skin still singed, Churchill never brought it up and passively, but quietly, refused Lloyd George's suggestion that he, Winston, and Bracken establish a national opposition party. But Churchill still read the newspapers. He couldn't help but keep up with the larger world, even if he didn't like it very much at the moment. When he did find something interesting, he would jot down a note as he was in his room with breakfast, alone, of course, and had a servant take it to Clem, who was in some other part of the house. She would write a response. The servant would then retrace his steps. More and more, his notes were about an extreme political party in Germany, the National Socialist Workers, or Nazi Party. The German state, as Winston knew, still seethed over Versailles, and they should, Winston believed. So did he. One does not humiliate a large, populous country filled with industrious, proud people and not expect a reckoning. Winston was one of the first to read the English translation of Mein Kampf when it became available. His summation was straightforward. Quote, Man is a fighting animal, therefore the nation, being a community of fighters, is a fighting unit. Unquote. The nation's ferocity comes from its race, which has to be purified, to better prepare for the struggle of survival. And, as the Jewish race is as international as can get, it cannot be a part of the German equation. What's more, one of the first steps Germany needs to take is to gather, quote, all the scattered German elements in Europe, unquote. Given Winston's emotional state at the time, it's understandable when he wrote Clem that he admired Hitler, for although his early life was a string of failures, the man did not turn to communism. What's more, the man in the trench coat had the power to unite so many of his people. His ideas were extreme, obviously, but he had the people thinking of Germany and not of themselves, a condition Winston felt his own country was lacking. Still, Winston knew, or believed early on, even before Hitler became Chancellor, that one day Britain would have to destroy him and his and Hitler felt the same way. Years before he came to power, as Winston was still tucked away in the wilderness, assumed never to arise again, the future Fuhrer told a British diplomat that he saw Winston as a Deutschenfrescher, a devourer of Germans. Quote, I naturally cannot prevent the possibility of this Herr, mister, entering the government in a couple of years, that he saw trouble for Germany if Churchill comes to power in Great Britain instead of Chamberlain, unquote. By the late 1920s, Winston had realized the 10-year rule and its renewal had been a mistake. Hitler was still one of many voices back then, but his words chilled Churchill's heart. He also thought it a mistake when the U.S. requested that Britain and France cut back on their military expenditure while reducing the reparation payments still owed by Germany. The Americans believed that this would help Germany feel less threatened, and the latter would help the German economy grow 
which would help Europe in general. So, as Churchill began to speak out against Britain cutting back its navy, to even below the minimum of what the navy thought best, as he spoke of being ready if someone like Hitler should come to power in Germany, as he even came close to mentioning a possible future war, what supporters the man had faded into the background. And of this time, the American political commentator, Walter Lippmann, who would later help coin the term Cold War, wrote, quote, The people are tired, tired of noise, tired of inconvenience, tired of greatness, and longing for a place where the world is quiet and where all trouble seems dead leaves, unquote. Winston condensed this to, The world has entered a period of exhaustion, which has been described as peace. Exhaustion or not, trouble seemed to be rearing its head when, in mid-1931, Germany and Austria announced a mutual customs union, which does not seem like much today, but then had important political and economic connotations. And Winston reacted. Beneath the custom union lurks the Anschluss, the union, the result being a solid German bloc of 70 millions which, of course, threatened France with its falling population and Czechoslovakia with its population of only three and a half million. The Italians and French soon read his speech, at the time many leaders still did, as they were covered in most major newspapers, realized the danger to themselves and protested, the Weimar government showing the weakness that Hitler would soon exploit, caved into the pressure and disbanded the Union even before it got underway. In a prelude to the eventual battle between Churchill and Hitler, Prince Otto von Bismarck Schoenhausen, the great-grandson of the great Chancellor, met with Winston about this time. The excuse, a chance to meet a great statesman. But the real reason was to sum up the man and his views of Germany, but particularly of the Nazi party. The two men met, had lunch, after which a secret report was sent to Berlin, which would also be read by Hitler as well, as he was the head of a leading party at the time. A part of the report read that Churchill often spoke ill of the Nazi party, which was part of the reason for its more negative reputation outside of Germany. Churchill, who had read Mein Kampf very carefully, also stated that Hitler was a liar. After all, didn't the man write, Quote, the great masses of the people will more easily fall victims to a great lie than to a small one. Unquote. And finally, the British politician predicted quote, that Hitler or his followers will seize the first available opportunity to resort to armed force. Unquote. Truer words were never spoken. It's worth noting that this report came with a cover letter written by Bismarck that read, quote, Although one should always bear in mind Winston Churchill's very temperamental personality when considering his remarks, they nevertheless deserve particular attention. As far as can be humanly foreseen, he will play an influential role in any conservative government in the years to come, however difficult his personal position may be in the conservative party, where he is mistrusted as an erstwhile liberal and free trader." Unquote. Ironically, this very conversation with the German diplomat moved Winston to action, 
Soon after, Churchill asked Prime Minister MacDonald, who found all matters connected to his armed forces boring, for access to detailed information concerning Britain's military strength. This was casually approved and then forgotten about. Until Winston was ensconced in Number 10 Downing Street himself, he would use this access to warn his people and Britain's allies to his country's weakness. But before he came to power, the prime ministers before him would rage at their underlings. Where was Winston getting this information? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now living the life of a backbencher, although a very loud one, Winston made the time to focus on his finances, to make sure his family was provided for after his death. After all, he was 57, had had a long, full life, and his father's relatively early demise was never far from his thoughts. So it was off to America to round up more contracts for his writing and public speeches. December 12, 1931, found him in New York, where he had just signed a contract for 40 speeches in the U.S. that would net him some 10,000 pounds. This was hard upon more good news. Just before leaving Old Blighty, he was contracted by the Daily Mail to write a series of articles about the mood and aspirations of the U.S. when he returned. This agreement put another 8,000 pounds in his pocket. That night of December 12th, Winston was on his way to a dinner party. So, this being New York, jumped into a cab. But he couldn't remember the address. So he and the taxi driver rode around for an hour, Winston hoping to recognize the place. Having no such luck and getting frustrated with himself, he had the cab pull over so he could exit and have a look around. The cab came to a stop on the Central Park side of Fifth Avenue. Getting out, Churchill's eyes roamed the buildings and palatial homes around him. Deciding to cross the street, Winston was immediately reminded that he was in New York, not London. First, the red light at the nearest intersection was working against him. He hadn't had to bother with them back home. They weren't being used yet. And secondly, he looked right instead of left before leaving the curb. The Americans, of course, drove on the wrong side of the street. Almost instantly, Winston was hit by a car going just over 30 miles an hour. He was dragged for a ways and then thrown from the car as the driver stomped on the brakes. A crowd rushed around him, including the driver of the car, one Mario Constasino, who profusely apologized. Winston, ever the gentleman, told the man not to worry, for it was all Winston's fault. He had looked the wrong way. Soon another cab was hailed, Winston was gently placed inside and taken to Lenox Hill Hospital. But if getting hit by a car was painful, dealing with the paperwork before being treated was almost equally so. The hospital receptionist asked him who he was. Quote, I am Winston Churchill, a British statesman, unquote. Which was fine, but how is he going to pay for his treatment? 
Lennox was a private hospital, and he only had a few dollars in his pockets. Holding his scalp together, he had a cut on his head that went to the bone, and ignoring his scraped thighs that bled down to his legs, he calmly asked the lady to put a call through to the Waldorf. Clementine and Detective Thompson, yes, Scotland Yard insisted on this, showed up as fast as they could. Wiping blood from his eyes, Churchill told the detective, They almost got me that time, Thompson. Clem pulled out cash from her purse, and only then was chloroform administered. Quote, A few breaths, Winston would later write, and one has no longer the power to speak to the world. Unquote. The diagnosis was thus, slight temperature, severe head scalp wound, two cracked ribs, and very, very bruised. Later the next day, King George telephoned the hospital to check up on his illustrious subject. One can only hope that that same receptionist who quote-unquote helped Winston answered the phone. And Winston, being Winston, placed a call himself to his good friend, the Prof. Lindman. He asked this brainy cove to calculate the force of which he was hit. Churchill confessed, I do not understand why I was not broken like an eggshell or squashed like a gooseberry, unquote. He then went on to give the man every detail he knew, and this was the prof's reply. Collision, equivalent falling 30 feet on pavement, equal 6,000 pounds energy, equivalent stopping 10-pound brick drop 600 feet, or two charges buckshot, point-blank range. Rate inversely proportional thickness, cushion, surrounding skeleton, and give a frame. If assume average one inch your body transferred during impact at rate 8,000 horsepower. Congratulations on preparing suitable cushion. Unquote. Churchill used this information in a new article entitled My New York Adventures. It read in part, quote, I certainly suffered every pang, physical and mental, that a street accident or, I suppose, a shell wood, can produce. None is unendurable. There is neither the time nor the strength for self-pity. There is no room for remorse or fears. If at any moment in the long series of sensations a gray veil deepening into blackness has descended upon the sanctum, I should have felt or feared nothing additional. Nature is merciful and does not try her children, man or beast, beyond their compass. It is only when the cruelty of man intervenes that hellish torments appear. For the rest, live dangerously, take things as they come, dread not, all will be well. Unquote. As Dr. Picard had described rest, it was time to head to the beach, with a special note from the physician detailing the patient's need, convalescing, you know, for a certain amount of alcohol each day. Prohibition could not be allowed to stand in the way of good health. But while in Nassau, Winston suffered a nervous breakdown. The body was catching up to events. He was no longer able to concentrate, and all enthusiasm had vanished. This left the door open for his lifelong depression to have its hour on the stage. Magazine deadlines were missed. Speeches had to be canceled. Thousands in pounds were not earned which only added to the darkness inside the man's head and soul. Clementine wrote to their son, quote, Last night he was very sad 
and said that he now, in the last two years, had three very heavy blows. First, the loss of all that money in the crash, then the loss of his political position in the Conservative Party, and now this terrible injury. He said he did not think he would ever recover completely from the three events. Unquote. But this is the scamp Winston we are talking about. First his soul slowly, slowly recovered, and then his body followed suit, but even more slowly. By the end of January 1932, Winston's enthusiasm was back in its normal frame. He gave speeches, interviews, wrote, brought on more writing contracts, and made plans for the future. While at the British Embassy, where he was staying, he confessed to his new secretary, quote, I've done rather something dreadful. I just asked the Washington exchange operator for a glass of sherry, thinking I was speaking on the house telephone. I'm afraid I have rather gave her a shock, unquote. But the depression had not exited the stage completely. It came and went, and with it, his ability to work or not. However, Winston pressed on. What else can a man do? And by the time he sailed home on the Majestic, he had at least a year's worth of work in magazine articles alone. And though Churchill felt alone at times, he wasn't. When still in Nassau, Brendan Bracken had decided that a new car would go a long way in cheering up his friend. So he contacted many of Winston's other friends, and they all ponied up. Some of the contributors were Harold Macmillan, John Maynard Keynes, The Prof, Lloyd Lord, Austin Chamberlain, Charlie Chaplin, Beaverbrook, and the Prince of Wales, whose personal life would soon affect Churchill's public one. When Churchill's train pulled into Paddington Station, a Daimler, costing 2,000 pounds, and many of the contributors were waiting there to greet the man. Welcoming him home, they sang, For he's a jolly good fellow. Churchill, taken by surprise, tried to smile and thank them all. But it was beyond this man who wore his heart on his sleeve. Instead, all he could do was bow his head and cry. Now back home, the demands of Chartwell's grounds did its owner much good. Winston toiled during the day and wrote at night. A new secretary was brought on board, and like almost everyone else who stayed there, was expected to get his hands dirty every now and then. As the two men were building a wall, Churchill, laying the bricks himself, asked the younger man, without looking away from his work, quote, do you suppose that in 500 years these bricks will be excavated as a relic of Stanley Baldwin's England? Unquote. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Marshal Stalin was receiving a British delegation. Its leader was Lady Astor, the first woman elected to the House of Commons. The Soviet leader asked about other absent British politicians. Her immediate response was that, quote, Chamberlain is the coming man, unquote. Stalin seemed confused. What about Churchill, he asked. Churchill, she gasped. Oh, he's finished. Epilogue. Winston had waged the battle for India for three years. He lost, 
but so did his opponents. The Government of India Act was passed by the House in August of 1935, but it was rejected by the Indian Congress, the Indian Princes, and the Muslims. Epilogue, Part 2 During the early 1950s, social scientists began a comprehensive poll of Indian villages to determine how many natives knew British rule had ended in 1947. But the survey was abandoned when it was discovered that a majority of the people didn't even know the British had arrived. England's East India Company had been chartered in 1600. Epilogue, Part 3 When Churchill finally becomes Prime Minister, although in his country's darkest hour, one can't help but feel that Winston, the man, relished this time. After all, here is the ultimate battle, the supreme challenge. Could he really lead his country, not ready for war, against the might of the German military machine that had been preparing for years and was already battle-tested? And forgetting victory for the moment, would Great Britain, with himself at the helm, even last out the next few months? Many doubted it, and he would. But Churchill had a lifetime of experience to draw upon. Of course, not all of it good. The Dardanelles adventure had to be uppermost in his mind, and that had gone horribly wrong because of politics and interdepartmental strife. That could not be allowed to be repeated. Coming together was what was needed. Teamwork, and, quite frankly, a firm hand. His hand. Oh, those that served under him would achieve wonders, but Winston, despite his 65 years, would have a finger in every pie he could reach, or that came into view. He also had to be the consummate politician. He needed to coax FDR ever closer to his side, even though the people of the U.S. were content to stay on their side of the ocean. And when Russia becomes an ally, Churchill must swallow his hatred of communism and work with Stalin. Yes, Winston Churchill would have to wear many hats, pick the right men to work with, cheer his people along through the blood, sweat, and tears. But, after all I have read, he probably did it all with a smile, plain at the corner of his mouth. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, before we get on to the Churchill giveaway, I just wanted to thank a couple people. Thank you to Michael W. from the UK for ordering a CD. Thank you to Danny D. from Abbeville, Louisiana for a donation. And from Erica C. in Amherst, New York for her donation. And I just want to say hi and thank you to the newest members. Um, let's see here. There is a gentleman named Philip. Um, I don't know where he's from, but uh, Philip, thank you. Christopher T. from East Sussex, UK. Edward G. from Carluke, UK. Uh, Nathan R. from New Brunswick, Canada. Brett P. Sorry, Brett, I'm not sure where you're from. Olav M. from Kolsas, Norway. Sorry if I butchered Kolsas. Uh, William E. from Chandler, Arizona. Joshua C. from Braidwood, Illinois. John C. who bought a mug and became a member. And John S. from Narara, Australia. Sorry if I butchered that. And now let's get on to the Churchill Mug Contest. 
Okay, so here we are. This is the part everyone's been waiting for. You put up with me doing 20-something episodes of Churchill just so you could have a chance to win a free mug. So as I said before, we're going to give away five Churchill mugs. Uh, a whole bunch of people have entered. Um, so what we're going to do is I have my family here to help me. Um, we'll pick out five names, and um, then I'll email you. Or if you hear your name and you're pretty sure it's you, you can certainly email me. And I'll get your address and ship it out to you. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna do this. Uh, Kiki, would you like to go first? I don't like. Okay. Just, yeah, just reaching out. Alright, reaching in. Okay. Alright, don't don't hurt yourself. All right, here we go. Okay, so Mike L. Um, you didn't put your um, where you live, but that's fine. So Mike L. Um, I will be contacting you soon to let you know that you're you won. So he's our first winner. All right. So there's one. Sophie, would you like to go? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Just, just, just is that one or two? That's one. Okay. Okay. Next one is Ashin M. Um, I will be contacting you. I think he's from Ireland. He's currently in Italy. So I will be contacting you, or you can email me, and I'll let you. I'll get the address from you and ship that out to you. Okay, so we have two winners. Heather, please. She's being very fair. She's stirring the pot. Okay, now she's just. There we are. Thank you. Okay, Luke R. from Leeds in the UK. I will be contacting Luke. Uh, he's winner num number three of our Churchill mug. All right, uh, Sophie, would you like to go again? Okay. Kiki, would you like to go again? Okay, now they're fighting. Neither one of them want to go again. Okay. They will both want to be last. Kiki is going now. Okay. Thank you for the commentary. Right. Okay. So winner number four is Darko G from Australia. So, Darko, I will be contacting you. You have won a mug, a Churchill mug, or, or you can pick an FDR mug just to let everybody know. Uh, as crazy as that sounds, you can pick between FDR and um, Churchill, and you can see both of them on the, uh, on the website. Okay, so, Sophie, you get to pick the last winner. Just, there you go. <laughs> okay, so the last winner for our Churchill mug before we get back to the war is Tyler C. from Surrey, BK, um, British Columbia. So congratulations to everyone who won, and I will be contacting you as soon as I can. And uh, next time you hear from me, we will be getting back to the war in North Africa and in Greece. Daddy. Bup, 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 bup. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where are you going? We're not done yet. Sit down. Okay. So for all of you who entered the mug contest, and there were a lot of you, I really do appreciate it and all the nice things you wrote. But if you didn't win, you're probably sitting there right now going, damn it, Ray. Anyway, so no, those five people who won the mugs were eliminated. Here is the grand prize. So if you take a look at the cover art for this episode, you might have to go to the website, worldwar2podcast.net. You're, you're going to see the picture of what is the grand drawing. So for all of you who have put up with me for almost a year doing Churchill, I've got one more thing to give away. It's a hand cut piece of wood with a very famous picture of Churchill on it. And uh, I'd like to thank Isaac McNary for sending me two of those. One I get to keep and I will put on my desk. Thank you. And the other one I just wanted to give away right now. So it's very nice. It's very lovely. You can see the picture and hopefully he'll do more um, leaders 
or other important people from World War II because I'd love to, to get a collection. So we're going to do one more drawing. I'm going to draw that name and then I'll contact that person. And that person is the grand winner of uh, everything we've done over the last year. So I'm just going to reach in here, randomly, totally randomly grab a name. My kids are asleep or they'll, they'll get mad at me if they knew I was doing this. Let's see here. Bird Norman. Okay, Bird Norman, I will be uh, contacting you just as soon as I can. You are the grand winner of this really beautiful thing. And again, I encourage all of you to go to the website and see it. It really is neat. And um, now we are done. You can go back to your life. And I will be out with episode 108 just as soon as I can. Thank you, everyone. And I hope you enjoyed this tiny diversion of Churchill's life as much as I have. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.